Hello, and welcome back to the Baz Reviews BazCast. I'm your host, Baz, and we've got another awesome episode lined up for you this month. It's episode number 13, and to start it off, we're going to do a quick recap of the month of January, all the albums that I listened to, and a quick preview into February. But the meat of this podcast is going to come from a recap of the Grammys, then we'll get into the short segment about the movies I watched during the month of January, and finish it off with some hot takes. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Welcome aboard. Can you believe it? One year ago today, the first Baz Reviews BazCast was published on SoundCloud. And now look at where it's gotten. It's crazy to believe that I'm on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. I am just super happy to see that it has grown into what it has. And thank you so much again for tuning in to my podcast, which is the best place to discover cool music. Hope you all are doing well and had a wonderful start to your new year. If you're new here, I would definitely recommend subscribing. And if you like what you're hearing during the podcast, please drop a like or leave a review on any streaming service that you're on. I just had a couple of things I wanted to bring up to your attention before we got into the podcast here. Um, As usual, I'd like to talk a little bit about Baz Merch. You can find that under the Baz Merch tab on my website, which will be linked down in the show notes. Use the code word Baz, B-A-Z-Z, to get 25% off of a t-shirt, a hoodie, a coffee mug, whatever you can imagine. It's all on the Teespring store. So be sure to check it out if you're interested in purchasing some merchandise. Your support is greatly appreciated. And while we're talking about support, I would like to also bring up my new Patreon, which I started last month. I am also linking that down in the show notes. For a couple dollars a month, you guys would be providing me with the opportunity to grow my podcast, allow me to travel more, buy better equipment, the whole nine yards. So if you find it in your heart, you like what you're hearing and would like to see more from me, feel free to donate a couple dollars and see some new content from me monthly. I'd also like to say, please go follow me on Instagram at Baz Reviews, where you'll get constant updates of when I'm posting on the blog, as well as BazCast updates and other music news. All that aside, let's get into the podcast, starting off with a month in review of January. So for some of my newer audience members here, what I will typically do in some of the earlier months of the year, because there's not really a lot of releases to pick from, I like to focus and go back to some of the records that I've missed over the years, ones that I missed from the previous year, etc., and give my thoughts and opinions on them. I usually rate albums from a scale of 1 to 10. I've never given anything a 0 quite yet, but we'll see. Usually anything from 5 on down is negative, and 6 is usually positive, and going up from there to a 10 is on the higher end of things. So to start off the month, I want to talk a little bit about There Existed an Addiction to Blood, the newest record from the sub-pop rap trio Clipping. I had a mixed opinion of them after listening to their acclaimed 2014 record, Clipping, and that's spelled C-L-P-P-N-G, not C-L-P-P-I-N-G, but I did hear a lot of buzz around this new record from them. It was one that I missed last year, and I think I kind of have more of a changed opinion after listening to this one. Compared to Clipping, the production on here does pay homage to their noisier origins. Producers Jonathan Snipes and William Hudson gave the frontman David Diggs a little more of an arsenal of diversity in beats to work with. Diggs has such a unique flow and one that has really stood out to me over the years. He's still hitting home runs on so many tracks on here, including some of my favorites, Nothing is Safe, Club Down, Blood of the Fang, and their album trademark story track, Story 7. I think some of the tracks on here are a massive improvement over what I've heard before, but that's not to say the group still has a couple of kinks to work out. 
In my opinion, I think Clipping really struggles at finding artists to feature on their records, and many of the artists who get supporting verses are not super interesting to me. And I kind of did feel like there were a few songs on here that added a little bit of weight to their 68-minute runtime, which I believe is the longest in their discography. If I were in charge of editing down this record, I probably would have scrapped La Mala Ordina, the R&B track All in Your Head, and the bizarre ambient closer that was Piano Burning. It was basically just like a, you know, like a fire sizzling for like almost 17 minutes. So yeah, that would bring it down from... 68 to 51 minutes just by that. While their existence to blood has some glaring flaws, they're neutralized by some of the best songs the group has put out to date. I ended up giving this project a 7 out of 10. Like I experimented with last year, I'm going to continue my journey through the Wu-Tang Clan discography, not only their original works, but some from the solo artists as well, and I dove into Tikal by Method Man. Um, I do like Method Man a lot, but his flow on this project kind of seemed like off. I think after listening to this project, compared to some of the other Wu-Tang solo releases I've heard, I didn't really like the sound on the lead-off track Tikal, What the Blood Clot, and Release Yodelf, to name a few. However, I will give this album credit for having some of the more diverse experiment of beats across the entire Wu-Tang Clan expanded discography, something that a fair amount of 90s rap hadn't really seen yet at the time. I'd say it was also great to be hearing from guys like RZA, Inspected Deck, and Raekwon. They all had some cool guest spots on here, and I think that definitely added some depth to some of the tracks on here. I really liked songs like Biscuits, All I Need with Street Life, especially Meth vs. Chef with Raekwon reminds me a lot of Method's verse on Shame on a N-word, not going to say that out loud, don't want to offend anybody, and and the feature-heavy Mr. Sandman were definitely all highlights for me. I feel bad kind of dissing one of the stronger members of the Wu, but I think Method functions more as like a great one-verse punch rather than hearing him for like eight or nine songs rapping for four verses. Um, I gave this one a six and a half out of ten. So to cap off the month here, I did something that I've never done before. I did a three-part album review on The Weeknd's mixtape collection from the early 2010s called Trilogy. These were ones that I missed and uh, wanted to check out, so I devoted most of my month checking those out. To start things off, I'll talk about the lead-off mixtape on here, House of Balloons, and this was like the first weekend project that I've heard in full, and it's really interesting to compare where he kind of started and to where he is now. Despite this being more of a mixtape, as I mentioned, and not an album, I definitely think the stuff on here sounds like, I don't know, maybe like I don't want to say better, but, like, it sounds tighter than, like, the poppy stuff that we've seen from him recently. I really love, like, the dark, wavy, cinematic instrumentals. It sounds really ahead of its time for sure, and his vocals just sound so buttery and crisp on here. He kind of reminds me of, like, a mix between, like, a, I don't know, like a 24K Magic era Bruno Mars with, like, earlier Beach House, which you would see on records like Zebra and Bloom. There were definitely a lot of great tracks on here and not many that I'd really consider, like, bad. Some of my favorites were High for This, House of Balloons, and Glass Table Girls, Wicked Games, and The Closer, The Knowing was also really tight, too. I gave this tape an 8.5 out of 10. Shifting gears, however, to Thursday, the middle record, I would say... It sounds a lot more like what The Weeknd is releasing recently. It's kind of like a heavy like juxtaposition to what we saw on um, House of Balloons. The sound on here is more diverse than that on House of Balloons, but it still builds off of that heavy reverb and synthesizer foundation that The Weeknd built himself up on. With Thursday, I didn't really find myself enjoying it as much as I did House of Balloons. A lot of the songs on here seem to like drag on a little bit more than I desired. I also felt as if that diversity didn't really conceal some of the dullness on some of the tracks. Don't get me wrong, I'm not discounting the fact that there are some decent cuts on here. I really liked Lonely Star, the title track Thursday, The Birds Part 2, and the closer Heaven or Las Vegas is really good as well. 
Other than that, I would still say that there was a lot to be desired for this project, and I gave it a 7 out of 10. To finish things off, Echoes of Silence was a great middle ground between House of Balloons and Thursday. Um, I think Echoes of Silence had a similar sound to Thursday, but I think the tracks on here just seem stronger overall than those on that project. I honestly think this might have been the best of the three tapes, if I'm being honest. I'd say that on here, like, the strongest of the weekend's vocal range is brought out on these cuts, for sure. I'd say it seems like I don't know, maybe more like emotionally charged in the first two outings, which I felt like that range was sort of limited. I think you can definitely see what I mean on tracks like Montreal, Outside, the host section of XO slash the host, Echoes of Silence, and Same Old Song. The production on here is also the gloomiest as well, so I think that's also what brought me to like this album more. Overall, I think it was definitely an amazing way to finish out the trilogy collection. I gave it a 9 out of 10, leaving an overall aggregate score of 8.17 out of 10. Continuing my streak of classic albums into next month, I'm going to be checking out Laughingstock by Talk Talk. I'm also going to be checking out Slanted and Enchanted by the band Pavement, who I've heard as a lot of acclaim, but I haven't really heard too much from them. I'm also going to be checking out Phil Elverum's side project, The Microphones, and their album, The Glow. I'm kind of disappointed with Phil Elverum. There's a fun story that I'd like to tell about um, him kind of denying an interview with me, but um, I'll save that for another episode. And to finish off the month of February, I think I'm going to get into Tame Impala's new record, The Slow Rush, which I've been super excited for. And I'm also considering listening to um, Grimes' new album, Misanthropocene, and King Cruel's new album, which I think is dropping mid-February, if I'm not mistaken, but I think I may put both of those off to March. We will see, but let's move in to the biggest part of this podcast, which is talking about the Grammys. I don't know if a lot of you guys saw this last year. It's kind of hidden back in the earlier days of Baz Reviews, but I posted my kind of a stink piece about the Grammys and, you know, my overall opinion on who won last year, etc. But I feel like this year I kind of want to talk about that a little more in depth and why I'm not a big fan of the Grammys and how they represent music. So I think the biggest headline of the night, and many would agree, as you've seen it on social media, the news, everywhere, Billie Eilish swept the big four categories of Album of the Year, Song, and Record of the Year, as well as Best New Artist. I, I do want to bring up a couple things about this, though. First off, she won Best Album of the Year, right? You also see in that category, you had Boney Vare's I I. Vampire Weekend's Father of the Bride, and Lana Del Rey's album Norman Fucking Rockwell, which I think would have been three great records to have won that award, but instead they gave it to Miss Eilish, who is 18 and really just cleaning up the game at such a young age, so that's very commendable for her, but I do kind of have a question about that. Um, for Song and Record of the Year, I was kind of surprised about this one, considering you had Old Town Road up for that award. It did end up winning for Best Pop Duo Performance, though, so it still got an award no matter what. And Truth Hurts as well by Lizzo, which was a big song. That ended up getting an award for Best Pop Solo Performance. And the song Sunflower by Sway Lee and Post Malone from Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was also a nice one that I enjoyed, but that got snubbed as well. I think for Best New Artist, though, I think that is one of the glaring kind of issues that I have with Billie Eilish. It's like, she's not a new artist. It's like, before When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go? She had success. I mean, she wasn't relatively unknown, like... 
other people like Lizzo, right? Like she was, she's been making music for five years for God's sakes. And then suddenly TikTok and movies and all this stuff help her blow up. Like I think she was more deserving of that award than Billie Eilish. You also had Rosalia in that category and Maggie Rogers, who I think would have been valid candidates as well. But I think the biggest and most happy award that I saw from the night was Tyler, the creator, winning his first Grammy for Igor. So proud of him. Very deserving and one that I would 100% agree with in an overall kind of weak rap album category. You saw The Lost Boy by YBN, which would have been a close second, but it was inevitable Igor was going to win. While we are on the rap side of things, though, I was kind of disappointed to see Nipsey Hussle winning both rap performances. I mean, he died a year ago. You know, you guys want to honor him. It was in L.A., give him the credit, but like, I really like Suge by DaBaby, I mean, it's just a great cut, it's really enjoyable for me, so, I don't know why they chose Nipsey Hussle over DaBaby, he's been a big star this year, releasing two albums, one of the things that I kind of scratched my head about, also on the sung rap side, you also had Ballin' by Mustard and Roddy Rich. Roddy Rich is actually doing pretty well right now with his new hit single, The Box, which is, it's it's catchy, I guess. You know, you, you see it on TikTok and stuff. It's it's okay. Also, Panini by Lil Nas X for Sung Rap, I guess, could have been on there. But, you know, Old Town Road was really the big hit for him. And uh, Panini was kind of a second star. We also saw a lot by 21 Savage and J. Cole win for Rap Song. And I think Shook should have won that as well. Like I said, it is just a more enjoyable cut. I'm not even going to go over the country awards. I hate country music with a burning passion. You know, I, I've listened to some of it. Maybe not. Maybe not hate. I just, some of the artists now just aren't as interesting as stuff I've heard in the past. I mean, yeah, you have Outlaw Country. You have Country from the mid-2010s. That isn't too bad. But just now, I just can't stand it. So we're going to skip all that. But I was really happy as well to see Anderson Pack winning Best R&B Performance for Come Home with Andre 3000. It wasn't necessarily the best song I heard off of Ventura. I thought for sure King James or Make It Better with Smokey Robinson could have gotten the nod. We also saw Lizzo win another award for R&B performance with Jerome. I'm not sh- I'm not sure why they would categorize it as R&B. I guess, like, what's their kind of qualification behind that? As we switch from the kind of R&B rap scene here, we'll switch over to the rock side of things. It was kind of frustrating to see Gary Clark Jr. beat out Harmony Hall for best rock performance. I was kind of unhappy with that. I don't know why they had that. Um, Social Cues for Best Rock Album wasn't a bad choice either. I liked that. It was a decent record. Um, Vampire Weekend did make up for their snub for Best Record of the Year by winning Best Alternative. You also had UFOF in that category, or II, which I still would have liked to see too. Good for Rosalia on the Latin side of things, winning for her Latin album El Malcarer, which was really good. We also saw Cellophane, one of my favorite songs of 2019, get nominated for Best Music Video, but it didn't win. But guess who did win? Lil Nas X for, yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna ride on the success of the Billboard charts and everything else for the whole year of 2019 until I can't no more. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, another award that I kind of think is is stupid, it's not like representing the best of the producers it's Phineas O'Connell Billie Eilish's older sibling winning that award they just never nominate the real like heroes of the producing scene you know like you look at some of the great rap producers kind of get snubbed for that it's just I don't know so now this is kind of the toughest thing for me now talking about my opinion of the Grammys I think it really is silly why the Grammys don't really you know they, they, they try they try their best to nominate the best of the year, but I just, I don't like what they do. 
they always choose the more financially successful records. They choose the ones that resonate with people because it's popular. They get listens on Spotify. They get plays on Spotify, etc. If you look at what the Oscars did that, think about it. Like, if they picked the most financially successful movies from any year, there would be such a lack of diversity. And you kind of see that here as well with the Grammys. If we purely base the Oscars off of the top 10 financially successful movies, we would get movies like Aladdin, John Wick 3, Hobbs and Shaw, and I think the top three would probably be like Avengers, Spider-Man Far From Home, etc. And that's just crazy to believe, right? Like, you'd be like, what? Why is that getting nominated for an Academy Award? You would almost think the same thing with the Grammys, but you don't. The Recording Academy's mission is to, quote, advance artistic and technical excellence, work to ensure a vital and free creative environment, and act as an advocate on behalf of music and its makers. Whereas the Academy Awards mission statement is nearly the same, to recognize and uphold excellence in the motion picture arts and sciences, inspire imagination, and connect the world through the medium of motion pictures. But why don't they kind of nominate the same pool of movies or music? It just doesn't really make sense to me. I guess one could technically argue that some of the albums that were on my top 10 list ended up getting nominated and that I shouldn't complain, but at the same time, you just look and see the same five artists in every category getting nominated. I think it's just stupid, and it's not really representative of the whole pool of artists that you see. I think the way we treat musicians is like, you know, the best of the best only get nominated, and if you don't have a lot of plays on Spotify, or if you're unknown, or if you're new, you don't really get a lot of reward for what you do, and I think that's really frustrating, and why it takes a lot for a band to really get successful. You know, they could have a successful song through a social media app like TikTok, which you've seen with a lot of unknown people. You could have them blow up on another social media platform on Spotify, but most of the time, if you're not already well-known, the chances of you getting nominated for a Grammy or getting discovered whatsoever and it's kind of a call to you guys, Recording Industry of America, to change the way you do the Grammys for the future. And I hope that coming up that you guys will change the way you, you know, nominate your artists for awards and the way you pick your winners. Yes, I know that may have sounded a little harsh, but I just, I'm really frustrated with the way the music industry is working right now. Everyone's only in it for the financial gains. They vaunt over awards like you know, going gold or platinum on the billboard, being number one on the billboard. It's just, you shouldn't just make music just to make music. You make music because you are proud of it. Are you really proud of making an album that's 90 minutes long and 25 tracks? Drake, are you proud of making a 25-song album that's an hour and 46 minutes? Migos, no, I don't think so. You're only in it for the financial gain. So to kind of decompress from that, we'll take a quick break over to the movies that I watched in the month of January. I made it a New Year's resolution to start watching more movies in 2020, and it was something that I really put off a lot last year because I was just so busy trying to get this project off the ground, and I just totally lost sight of something that I love almost as much as I do music and its movies because I'm at a point where I can be more flexible with what I post, when I interview, etc., that I can watch more movies, and it's been crazy. I think from the beginning of the month until now I've watched 17 films which for me is like a personal best I mean not to brag or you know say that I don't have a life or anything but like I've never watched that many movies in a span of 30 days so I'm, I'm pretty proud of myself that I'm starting to get into more film that I haven't seen over the last you know 
couple years that I've wanted to watch for a really long time. Starting off the month on New Year's Day, I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's new film, which I thought was, it was okay. It definitely wasn't his best film by any means. It left a lot to be desired. It was a little slow at points, but still not a bad movie overall. I also watched The Boondock Saints, the cult classic. Wasn't a big fan of this one either. You know, it is campy. There's, there's some funny dialogue. There's some decent violent scenes. It's a cool concept, but just, I don't know, wasn't super interesting to me, I guess. Kind of left me bored at points, but still a fun movie to get off my bucket list nonetheless. I also watched Noah Baumbach's new movie, Marriage Story, which I really liked. It's nominated for Best Picture this year. Some of the best acting I've seen, and I would be really surprised to see Scarlett Johansson not get a win for Best Actress. She did really well in that role. Um, Adam Driver, I think he'll probably lose out to Joaquin Phoenix's performance as Joker. I reviewed that movie earlier in the Baz Reviews Bazcast Life. I think it's on the October one if you're interested in checking that one out. I also watched Duncan Jones' earlier film, Moon, from 2009. It was another cool concept movie, I guess. It had a, like a fun concept. It was interesting to see kind of him explore the ethics of companies and, you know, what happens in space and stuff. I thought that was a really fun idea and a twist on life in space. I also watched the Safdie Brothers' earlier film, Good Time, and I'm really excited to see Uncut Gems after watching this one. It's a fast-paced thriller starring Robert Pattinson, of all people, and he does just so well in this role. The movie's so tightly shot. It's just like, it's ADD. It's like, you can't, it's like there's so much to focus on in each scene. It's like, it's crazy. And I guess I've had some people tell me it's like a panic attack. It's it's like, it's it's insane for sure. So, I don't know. It might not be up your alley. It's it's grotesque, but it is just a really fun film and really fast to get through. I think it's only about 100 minutes. I also watched The Spectacular Now, which was a coming-of-age film from earlier in the decade. I thought it was pretty good. The whole movie was great, and I kind of just like was like, what the hell's up with this ending? It just ended so abruptly that I just couldn't really give it a like or you know, half-star more. I just think that kind of detracted from it overall. I also watched Scorsese's classic Taxi Driver, which I hadn't seen in a while up to that point. So I really liked it, and after seeing Joker again in January as well, I think you can really see some of the similarities between the two movies for sure. I also watched a Sidney Lumet classic Network, which I really liked. That was a crazy movie, definitely. Loved Peter Finch's performance in that. Some of the best acting I've seen probably ever, if I'm being honest. Um, I also watched Leon the Professional, which is supposed to be a very good movie by Luc Besson. It was like, I don't know, I didn't really get the hype around it. It's kind of overrated. I didn't really like Leon as a character. I did like Natalie Portman's Matilda. That was a really nice character. Gary Oldman's performance as the villain is just superb. Some of the action sequences in here are really cool too. A smart take on the action genre for sure. I also watched the new Olivia Wilde directorial debut, Booksmart, which I thought was okay. I had someone tell me it reminds them a lot of a female super bad, and I kind of get that, except this movie kind of just like front loads like all the good jokes at the beginning of the movie and then kind of gets more cringy as it goes on, I guess. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't really like great either. I wouldn't really, I didn't really see all the hype around it. I also continued my Sidney Lumet tear with 12 Angry Men, and I really liked this one. I gave it five stars and a like. It was really cool to see. I'd never seen it before, but if you're trying to get into older cinema, this is one that's super accessible. It's short, it's quick, leaves a good message, and a lot is just learned from this movie, and I came out of it with a different viewpoint. I also watched another A24 film this month. It was with Aquafina, and it was called The Farewell. Aquafina won for her performance in this, and rightfully so. She did so well. It was really cool to see this movie, and it's based on a true story, too. If you're in for a nice, feel-good movie, this is one you should definitely check out. I watched L.A. Confidential. 
uh, Curtis Hansen's kind of one-hit wonder, if you will. It was really good. Liked it a lot. The screenplay is really well written. Great story. Plot twist at every turn. It can be a little bit slow at points, but I still really liked it overall. I also watched another directorial debut, Jonah Hill's Mid-90s. This had a killer soundtrack. I... I was just eating it up the whole time. So many great 90s rap songs on there. You saw Tears. You saw 93 Till Infinity. Um, another really great Morrissey song that I really came to love this month. We'll let you know. I'd never heard it until that point. But it was still a really good film in general. I watched Ex Machina, the classic 2010s thriller action film. I really liked the concept in it. It, it, it was really a nice film to watch. Cool visual effects, definitely, and it was rightfully winning the Academy Award for that, for sure. It also surprisingly got a screenplay nomination. I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, the dialogue between Dom Hall Gleason and Oscar Isaac was funny at times, and definitely the relationship between Alicia Vikander and Dom Hall was really great, too. And then the last movie I watched kind of ended it on a sour note, another Noah Baumbach film, The Squid and the Whale. I think this is like Marriage Story, but like a million times worse. The characters in here are just so damn unlikable. I was pretty much bored with this movie about halfway through, and it's 80 minutes, so that's saying a lot. I wouldn't really recommend it to anyone. It got a lot of critical acclaim. It's an older film. You gotta give it credit. It's creative, I guess. But just for me, it wasn't right. I didn't feel like... I think if you want to watch a Bombback film, definitely watch Marriage Story and not The Squid and the Whale. So now that we got my brief movie update out of the way, let's finish it up with some hot takes. <laughs> oh, that's hot. That's hot. Recently, I posted the newest installment of Hot Take Hotline, an installment that has proved to be popular over time for my blog, so I figured I would talk about some of the ones that I got on here. I put something on my Instagram a little while ago for people to send in their hot takes. I like to kind of take a little bit of time to just not only focus on some of the music hot takes, but anything I'm open to talking about, you know, movies, sports, food, whatever you want to talk about. And whenever I post one, be sure to add stuff because I'm always happy to hear what you have to say and talk about for the podcast or on the blog in general. So to start things off, someone said Griselda had a much better 2019 than Dreamville and TDE. For me, there wasn't really too much to compare. Neither TDE or Dreamville had a great year to show off as releases from both groups were kind of limited. Um, I'm not really a big fan of the artists on Griselda either. Like, their group album wasn't really super impressive to me, and the artists don't really seem to have their own sound. Like, they seem like an echo of, you know, past 90s and boom-bap artists. I think West Side Gun sounds a little like Ghostface Killa. Conway the Machine sounds a little bit like Jizz and Freddie Gibbs. I, I mean, I don't mind Benny the Butcher, though. He's, like, okay. Half-decent stuff, but I don't really think they're really ones that I'm going to go to. I like some of the artists on Dreamville. You saw them release their group album this year. And TDE had Schoolboy Q, but again, I just, I don't really know. I think it's a fine take, but I just don't really necessarily agree with it, I would say. Someone also said, music has been stale for the past four months or so, especially for hip-hop. I kind of beg to differ on that one. The fourth quarter for 2019 actually had a fair amount of decent records, so it's not necessarily stale, but I do think that the beginning of 2020 will need a good boost from new artists. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's already been releases from Tame Impala, Grimes, and King Cruel confirmed for February, so I think there will definitely be a positive change in scenery coming up soon. Um, in terms of the last few months, though, you know, I've heard very good things about Angel Olsen's new album. That was one I did not get to in 2019. Maybe I'll throw it in in uh, a couple of months if I have a little bit of time. There was also Magdalene by FKA Twigs, which was one of my favorite records of the year. And even, you know, Danny Brown released stuff on the rap side and Clipping as well. Another artist that I talked about earlier had some good stuff on here as well. For my mainstream listeners, you had the release of Trippy Red's newest album, A Love Letter to You 4. And you also had the collaboration between Travis Scott and Don Tolliver called Jack Boys. 
So if you're interested in checking either of those out, if you haven't already, be sure to do that. Another hot take was David Bowie is a top five artist of all time. I wouldn't really say that's a hot take. For me, I would say that there are artists higher up than him, but there's no doubt in my mind that Bowie has made an impression on me. He's such a talented musician, and he's released so many amazing records over the years. We could be talking about his early releases like Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, the Berlin Trilogy, or even his later stuff like The Next Day and Black Star. All those are pretty decent records. I think there's definitely a clear case for me that Bowie could be on someone's top five list. Someone commented on this. I was interested to kind of talk about this. It's one of my longer ones, but Joker is an overrated movie and didn't deserve any of the nominations that it got. I, I wouldn't say that it didn't deserve any nominations. I saw Joker on its opening night, and I really liked it, and I also rewatched it this month. I think it's still a fine film after watching it again, but, like, did it deserve all 11 Oscar nominations? I don't think so. I think the screenplay has flashes of good at times, but I think Todd Phillips kind of made the film really make its audience wait until that sensational third act. Again, it goes back to the film being a lot like Taxi Driver, and the critics are pretty much right. They did take a lot from that film. I'm no film pundit by any means, but I think my predictions for the Academy Awards will be Best Actor for Phoenix. I think if you haven't seen the movie, you definitely should. Um, I also think there's a chance at costume design and makeup for the movie, and I think, pardon my very poor Icelandic pronunciation here, but Hildur Gustnodetir's score and the cinematography department could also score wins. It still surprises me how many awards this film ended up getting. I think critics were originally mixed on it, but I feel like it's come to grow on them. Even because it's controversial and it's relevant to what's going on in society today, I think that's also why it's getting so many awards as well. So props to the guys who made the movie. Bradley Cooper was a producer. Todd Phillips did a great job directing and writing it. You know, I, I, I think it may win a few awards, but I, I could be wrong. Prove me wrong, Academy. Prove me wrong. Another take that got sent in was Antics by Interpol is better than their original debut, Turn On the Bright Lights. And I definitely disagree with this one. I like the more gothic sound on Turn On the Bright Lights. To me, it seems like Antics was trying a little too hard to imitate something. You know, I, I think the sound on here is more diverse, it's jovial, and it reminds me a lot of, like, Franz Ferdinand and a little bit of, like, funeral-aged arcade fire. It hasn't really aged well, I guess, in comparison to its competition. It's funny because all three of those artists released their respective albums in 2004, and I think I definitely prefer Franz's debut and Funeral much more than this project. Even though Turn On Those Bright Lights was only released two years earlier, it came out at a time when garage rock was like starting to emerge, and not many bands had started really offering such a sound in the market at that time, so I think that's why also it stands as a better record than Antics, in my opinion. Last take we have is Brandon Banks by Maxo Cream was a top five rap album from 2019. I mean, it's okay. Maxo's got some decent cuts on here for sure, but I had a few more albums that I'd put ahead of this one before I start mentioning Brandon Banks. There were so many awesome offerings from last year. You had Nothing Great About Printing by Slow Tie, the Grammy winning Igor, Gray Area by Little Sims, Bandana by Freddie Gibbs and Madlib, The Lost Boy, Baby on Baby by DaBaby, and Dare I Say It, Jesus is King? I mean, he's got potential to go places, there's no doubt, but to put it simply, I just think Maxo got overshadowed by a lot of artists in a pretty decent rap year of 2019. So, do you guys agree with my responses? If not, I would love to hear from you. But I think for now, that wraps up this episode of the BazCast. Thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll see you again real soon with another episode. Baz Reviews BazCast is a music podcast for the blog Baz Reviews. Its creator, that's me, William Baz Bazone will sit down with you guys to discuss special content every month. Whether it's reviews of new or classic albums, interviews with prominent musicians, or giving insight on certain aspects of music, find out why Baz Reviews is the best place to discover cool music. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. This episode was written, produced, and edited by William Bazone and was posted on Anchor, a great mobile platforming for podcasts.